Good evening, everyone. This is World Canvas Studio from International Programs, and I'm your host, Joan Kerr. Thank you for joining us for this evening of conversation with special guest James Zogby, the author of Arab Voices, What They're Saying to Us and Why It Matters. Dr. Zogby will discuss themes from his book for the first portion of our program, and then he'll join me and three members of the Iowa City community for a wide-ranging discussion. After our formal program, Dr. Zogby will take questions from the audience. We're coming to you from the Senate Chamber of the Old Capitol Museum on the campus of the University of Iowa, and I'd like to acknowledge our co-sponsors for this event. The Council for International Visitors to Iowa City, known as CIVIC, and Prairie Lights Bookstore. Thanks also to our broadcast partners, UITV, the University of Iowa, Pentecost Museums, KRUI-FM, and Information Technology Services. This program is being recorded for statewide television and radio distribution over UITV, Iowa Public Radio, and KRUI-FM, and it will be posted online. James Ogby is the founder and president of the Arab American Institute and senior advisor for the polling firm Zogby International, a Washington, D.C.-based organization which serves as the political and policy research arm of the Arab American community. In Arab Voices, Dr. Zogby challenges the myths, assumptions, and biases that create impediments to clear communication and understanding between America and the Arab world. By gracefully blending polling data and analysis with personal observations and family anecdotes, James Ogby gives us a picture of the Arab world that will be new to many Americans, and I think it couldn't come at a better time. Please welcome James Ogby. Thank you. Um, it is a delight to be in this building in a, a gorgeous uh, setting, and I thank you for hosting me here. Uh, this is the first of a number of visits of mine in, in Iowa to talk to folks about a book that I wrote a, about a year and a half ago before the current uprisings, but, but a book that um, I think is, while I wouldn't change a word in it, given what has happened, um, it's a book that I feel sets the stage for what is happening uh, and in some ways helps us understand, um, I hope helps us understand, not only what is happening, but who the people are who are engaged in this struggle um, for their rights, for self-determination, for uh, free and open, open governance. Um, I wrote the book uh, I'd been working on this book for a, a number of years. Uh, I'd done some others, but this is the one that I'd always wanted to write. It's, um, it was fun. It was fun to write. It was fun to tell the stories that I've always wanted to tell about people I've met and experiences I've had. It gave me a chance to put polling data together with the stories to kind of do the opposite of what, uh, what Tom Friedman does, which is what I call bad science. That is... He goes, I met a guy in a bar last night, he said this, and you know Arabs are like that. Or, um, or other writers at the Times who I respect, uh, I mean, Nicholas Kristof did one the other day, talked about the fact that I studied Arabic and never got past the past tense. That's the first lesson you learn, and that's why Arabs are all stuck in the past. I don't know what Arabic course he took that starts with the past tense, but frankly, the idea here is that 
even those who are the analysts, even those who we draw on for information, are usually mired in stereotypes. They're understanding uh, stuck in an observation which they generalize into a conclusion. And if the observation is false, then the conclusion itself is going to be false. And we're stuck with a, a, a vision or a view of Arabs um, based on, um, I would say on air, but air is not dangerous. But stereotypes and myths are dangerous. And, and that's what most of us are, are left with. I knew that to be the case, and I wanted to shatter some of those myths. Um, and so this book was, was the born of, 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 that, uh, of that desire, that intent. I say it was fun to write. I, I doesn't mean that at some point along the way it didn't become the damn book, especially coming from my wife. It was, is the damn book over, or are you done with that yet? Um, but it was fun. It was, it, was, uh, it was enjoyable, and I loved talking about it. Um, and, and so I've not tired of it since it came out, going around to audiences and speaking about the book, because I love the topic. When I hear or read stories about Saudi Arabia, I say, they're not the people I know. Or when I hear stories about Egypt, I say, they're not the Egyptians I know, or they're not the Bahrainis I know. I know the people, and to understand the event, you have to understand the people who are the players in the event. Um, and we don't. And, and that's why the book, to me, is important, because if you think about it, since the end of Vietnam, we have sent more money. We have sent more weapons. We've sent more troops. We've fought more wars. We've lost more lives in the Middle East than anywhere else in the world. Not only that, we have more political and economic interests at risk in the Middle East than anywhere else in the world. And not only that, but every US president since the end of Vietnam has had his and hopefully a few elections from now, we won't have to worry about saying his, we can say his or her presidency, has had his presidency shaped largely by uh, events in the Middle East, from Carter's Iran to the situation today with, um, with President Obama dealing with getting out of Iraq, trying to make peace, and dealing now with uprisings across the, the region. And yet, for all of that, our knowledge level is so low. When we ask Americans questions about what they know about the Middle East, like National Geographic did 2003, they surveyed Americans about Iraq. Here's what they found. They found that 11% could find Iraq on a map. In 2009, they repeated the survey. We'd already lost about 4,000 lives by then. The number sh sh skyrocketed. 37% could find Iraq on a map. We asked the same question in a poll in 2010. Same range, a little over 37% could find Iraq, knew where it was and who its neighbors were. Less than a third of Americans know Israel's uh, War of Independence was in 1948. 60% of Americans think Iran is an Arab country. Almost the same number think Pakistan's an Arab country, and on and on. When we ask Americans, why do Arabs dislike us? 80% say they hate our values. When we ask Arabs about American values of freedom and democracy, 
65% in the aggregate say they love our freedom and democracy and they love our values and they love our culture and people, etc. There's an enormous disconnect. And it's born of the fact that we just don't know. Here's one of the reasons why we don't know. Because our educational level is so low. I mean, I understand now that they're teaching Arabic here at the university. You realize that in 2,400 four-year college and universities in the United States, few over 300 actually offer Arabic courses. There are about 24,000 American students studying Arabic, which is a number slightly less than the number who study ancient Greek. Nothing against ancient Greek, it's a nice language, but we're not losing lives there. Many more studying Japanese. Less than 1% of American high school students are studying Arabic. Only 2,400 of those 24,000 who are studying Arabic are studying Arabic at a level where you can gain proficiency in the language. And the result is, is that not just do we suffer in terms of our foreign service and poor language training and, and numbers of people who don't speak the language, not only do we suffer in law enforcement, but we suffer across the board in that the education level, it's not just on the language, but it's on the history and the culture and the people. There's only 60 Middle East study programs in the entire United States of America on college level. When Middle East Studies Association or the Chicago Council on Global Affairs have studied secondary high schools, here's what they find. They find that most kids simply have at best rudimentary knowledge of the Middle East. Most are learning stereotypes even in school because the section that they'll study about the Arab world will be about Bedouins and that's it. It's like when I went to school the, 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 the textbook was, uh, had one picture of the Arab world. I never forgot it. It had two pyramids and a guy and a camel in front. And I think now it was product placement because you couldn't have bought camel cigarettes and known what you were getting, what that picture was, if you hadn't seen that one when you were, were a kid. But that's, what we, that's all we knew. And the chapter was a chapter on Bedouin life. There was nothing about the Arab contributions to the Renaissance. There was nothing about Arab civilization that predated the modern time and nothing about Arab civilization today. Didn't exist. I mean, it was a Eurocentric history. It wasn't just the Arab world that was missing, but so too was, you know, the, the rest of the East was missing. And Africa was the dark continent. That's all it was. There was no history other than the, what we identified as the, the exact and direct roots to our own history. The fact that, that our history is, in fact, indebted to all of these other, I mean, that China plays a role in civilization being conveyed through the Mongols from east to west is something that didn't even exist in our books. We didn't know that. We didn't study that. Because our knowledge level is so low, what do we know about the Arab world? Well, what we know is what we know through stereotypes, and they're largely culturally driven, driven through media. Um, when we did studies of television and uh, movies, what do we find? We find that the two dominant images of Arab are terrorist and, and oil shake. That's it. There are no other images. It's not that there aren't terrorists. Of course there are. Or oil shakes. Of course there are. 
but there are also real people, and they don't factor into the story. We don't see them. I mean, yes, we have, you know, Jews portrayed negatively and blacks portrayed negatively and Latinos portrayed negatively, but we also have other characters who round out the image. So if I see them, I say, well, he's this, but there's also that. If there is no other image of Arab, then what sticks is the stereotype. And if the popular culture is bad, the political culture is worse because what the political culture does is take the stereotype which is conveyed on one level and reinforces it and gives it a sense of certitude. So if I have Newt Gingrich saying it's a victory mosque and they're out to, to show us and dominate our culture and if you have Mike Huckabee saying the same thing or Sarah Palin saying the same thing or Pat Robertson on his television show saying the same thing, what happens is that people say, that's the truth. That's who those people are. I know them. Here's, the, here's a disturbing number. In 2001, when we polled the first time and asked Americans prior to 9-11, do you know the Arabs? Do you know enough? Do you need to know more? About 75% said that they didn't know enough and they needed to know more. When we polled after 9-11, we got the same number. Actually, it went up a little bit. About 79% said, I don't know enough about the Arab world. I need to know more. When we poll now, it's about 50, a little over 50% say, I don't know enough, I need to know more. Which means about half think they know enough. And here's the other part of the problem, is that those who know enough, there's a partisan divide. 73% of Democrats say, I don't know enough, I need to know more. 82% of Republicans say, I know enough, I don't need to know anymore. And of them, uh, 70% of Republicans think Islam is a religion of hate. 60% believe that Islam is a religion that, is, that breeds fanatics, that it, it, Muslims tend to be fanatics, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And this is dangerous. <laughs> it's dangerous because not knowing is one thing, but thinking you know and not knowing is worse. Especially when you not only think you know, but you're certain you know. And so that's what shapes the context in which we're in. When we sent over 100,000 young Americans to Iraq, we thought we knew. They told us. I mean, the lie of Iraq to me was not weapons of mass destruction. The lie was it would be over in six days. Six months and the troops had come home. That we'd only need 95,000 because that's all it would take because we would be greeted as liberators, there'd be flowers in the street, democracy would bloom, and a beacon would be lit that would light up the whole Middle East, and, and democracy would flourish everywhere. It would be, Iraq would be contagious. We were told that and believed it. We were carrying out God's will, George Bush said, and we believed it. And the Iraqi people would be grateful. I mean, where, when the knowledge level is low, and, it, and then it is um, sort of built on the popular culture and then made certain by the political culture ripe for exploitation. And that's the situation that we've got. And we have made blunders across the Middle East in policy after policy after policy because we simply do not know the people that we're dealing with. We see them act, 
But we can't judge the act or understand the act because we don't know the players. We don't know what motivates them. So what the book tries to do is it, it looks at, number one, the problem, which we're talking about right now. And then it goes into what are the myths that result from all of this, for example, that all Arabs are angry. That's one of the myths that we have. I mean, we have the notion that Arabs sit at home uh, and they're, they're, they hate America. They go to bed at night hating America. They wake up in the morning hating Israel. They spend the day watching Al Jazeera, hating even more. And if not, they're at the mosque where some imam is making them hate even more. And that's our, our sense of who they are. Um, when we poll, what we find out is that um, actually most Arabs go to bed at night worried about their jobs. They wake up in the morning thinking about their kids. They think about education and health care. Those are their priorities. Their priorities are, number one, the economy, jobs. Number two, their kids and their family. Number three, education. And four, health care. Sound familiar? Yeah, it's like they're like us. I mean, that's the first thing you learn. And they go to mosque about the same attendance rate, mosque goers in the Middle East, as churchgoers here. And when they watch television, religious programming is at the very bottom. Number one programming is movies. And then comes soap operas and dramas and entertainment shows like game shows. And, and they love, I mean, I was in the Middle East recently um, during the beginning of the Tunisian uprising. Lebanon is falling apart and Tunis is, um, is in the beginning of their uprising. And um, I'm at a Saudi's home in a little farm that he had outside of Riyadh and um, we're there with his, his, his family. There were about 18 of us in the room and we're watching television and the news is on and the debate is hot and heavy over you know Tunis and who's at fault and what's going to happen and over Lebanon and who's at fault and what's going to happen. Then all of a sudden the 28 year old son walks in and he says it's on and and it's like he goes over to television and he turns it, and the show that was on was Arabs Got Talent, which is exactly like um, um, American Idol, except it's a little gimmickier. They do funny things. Um, and we spent as intense an hour watching that show and debating who was going to win as we were about Tunis and Lebanon. It was over and we went right back to Tunis and Lebanon. Real people doing real things. And so that's the point that we have to understand who they are, what they're about. We saw Cairo on television. We didn't see what they were saying. We didn't see that Tahrir Square actually became Woodstock. I mean, there were dancers and musicians and there were poetry readings and it was an incredibly glorious celebration. And the slogans were downright funny because Egyptians are a funny people who love humor. We didn't see that part of it. And that's the myth we have to shatter. That's the story we need to tell, who these people are and what they're about, so that we can better relate to the region. President Obama went to Cairo, said we have to understand the Arab world not as we imagine it to be, but as it really is. My book was an effort to answer that question, to look at Arabs as they really are. And what I do is I conclude the book with a section that talks about um, getting it right, talking about the, 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 it's not all bad, 
because there are people in government, um, like our president, uh, who despite mistakes, and he's made plenty of them, is trying to get it right. Some of our aid programs that are <coughs> trying to get it right. Some American companies, corporations doing business in the Middle East, some of whom are our best public diplomats. I mean, when people go to the, in, in the Middle East and eat in an American brand restaurant or go buy Starbucks coffee, they're not doing it because the coffee's better. They want a little piece of America because the American brand is still value, valued in the Middle East. People love us. They just think we don't like them. But they like our products because it gives them a chance to do something that is American. And they want to be a part of that. So I look at the end of what are the people, places, products that are getting it right and trying to improve the relationship. And then I conclude actually with um, an appendix that talks about resources where you in your own home or you in your neighborhood and your community can be a part of getting it right and changing this dynamic, because it's important at the end of the day for all of us. We have got to get it right. Our politicians are steering us down a path one way, but the American people, look, Egypt's got a revolution, and Tunis is having a revolution. There's change everywhere. Maybe the last place on earth that there's going to come change is going to be here, but it's got to come here. We have to change our view of the world. We have to change our relationship with the world. And my book, I hope, helps us make a little step, at least moving us in the direction of saying, I have to ask some questions and learn a little bit more about a part of the world I thought I knew, but maybe I need to know a little bit better, because it's important, because we're too heavily invested and involved to not know the Arab world. So I thank you very much. So uh, that's Dr. James Zogby, and glad we could have so many of you with us here in the room tonight. Uh, I'm inviting up some other guests from our community who are going to engage in conversation with, with us. Uh, sitting next to Dr. Zogby is Shams Konen of Iowa City. She's the coordinator of the Iowa chapter of the Muslim Public Affairs Council, a native of Egypt. She's been an Iowa resident since 1967 and has been a UI medical researcher for 33 years. Shams is an active participant in interfaith dialogue, and she's a board member of the ACLU here in Iowa. She is also a community member of the Iowa City Press Citizen Editorial Board. Uh, William Reisinger is on the far end, and uh, Bill's a professor of political science at the University of Iowa. His research is largely focused on political transitions in the former communist states, principally Russia, but he also teaches courses on democratization and authoritarian politics. Uh, Dr. Reisinger is a former chair of the political science department and has served as the University of Iowa's associate provost and dean of international programs. And uh, sitting in between our two other guests is Dan Olinghouse, University of Iowa political science major from Ankeny, Iowa. Dan was in his second semester of an independent study abroad program at the American University in Cairo when the anti-Mubarak uprising began in Egypt. He witnessed the early days of the revolution and returned to the University of Iowa in February to finish the semester. So please welcome all of these guests. Thank you. 
So I, I turn it now to, to all of you. You've all had a chance to read Dr. Zogby's book, and I know you all have Im impressions, and you also have your own personal connections with uh, either, in your case, Bill, not so much the Middle East as your principal area of study, but, uh, you know, uh, regime change and um, polling and so on that, that would, uh, you can lend us some special perspectives, I'm sure, from political science in that area. And both Shams and Dan have a very personal um, connection with, with Egypt. Um, perhaps I'll go to you first, Shams. Do you have any immediate reaction to what Dr. Zogby said tonight? Well, of course, first of all, thank you for the great book. I, uh, John uh, gave it to me and I read it. It's uh, very timely. Uh, actually, it's not much of a question as much as a reinforcement of everything that Dr. Zorbi said and adding a little bit more from the Muslim perspective, of course, which he also alluded to right now. But also, I was there in Egypt during this wonderful uprising. And I remember right after the Tunisian uprising, my husband looked at me and said, God, I wish it comes here. Uh -huh. So it did, and it was <laughs> wonderful seeing it happening, of course, on the TV, although he did go to Tahrir Square. No. I was a bit of a wimp. I have some health issues that crowds and what have you. Yeah. But he came with a, that sense of the peacefulness of the demonstration. Uh, he said to me, he had his Iowa cap and his briefcase, and he said to me, the kids were wonderful. I said, yeah. I was terrified. I thought <clears throat> he was going to get hurt. He said, you know, they search you, make sure you don't have anything that can be used, you know, as a weapon. And then they thought I looked different, so they asked me, um, would you like a sandwich? Would you like some water? <laughs> he said it was just fantastic being in the middle of this youth movement that really is quite peaceful. There are a lot of families um, and, and, and children. You know, there was a, a paper here that had a, a father having a child on his uh, shoulder. It said, Irhal, uh, which is an Arabic, leave to Mubarak. Enough, it means enough for you, my father and my grandfather. Mm -hmm. So it was sort of this uh, very unusual, really, feeling for me personally. And living in Egypt the first 20 years of my life, uh, right after the revolution, uh, the feelings were quite different. Because again, we just got rid of a monarchy that was believed to be the agent of the British occupation. So we were very nationalistic. Uh, so I could understand the feelings in, in addition, of course, to the very important part that Dr. Zorbi alluded to, and definitely in the book, about this real problem I see in the American psyche. Um, and I am an American, Arab American, Muslim American, American. Um, it's zero knowledge and the stereotyping continuous. And of course, after 911, the Islamophobia and the Islam, and two events, I'm sure Dr. Okhtazabi and others are aware of it today, uh, was demonstrations in New York about uh, Congressman Peter King that is uh, looking into Muslim leaders and saying that we're not doing enough to stop the radicalizations of our youth. Um, as well as uh, California Orange County Congress Council lady, Polly. Miss Polly went on during a fundraising and saying that she knows many Marines that would love to send Muslims to heaven earlier. And the anti-Muslim horror uh, of the surrounding people. So we're in trouble here, <laughs> I'm sorry to say that 10 years almost after 9-1-1, we not only know anything about the Arab world, which we're so heavily invested, but we're also attacking our own citizens here for no reason except that there are some 
numbers, and definitely there is, the ones that were responsible for the 911, they were not even American citizens, they came from out. So we need to know Arabic, the history. We, not, we, not, we definitely need not to demonize any minorities anymore. It happened to the Jewish communities in Europe, and today we are doing it to the Muslim community in the US, and this is very dangerous, and we have to stop it. Thank you. Dr. Zogbehami, anything you want to say in response to Shams? Well, no, I, th I think it's a, that's an eloquent, um, an eloquent statement, and that is what I was trying to deal with in the book, um, to, to, to put a face on a people that we don't know. Um, and not a face, it was actually interesting when, I was, when, when the publisher and I were going over the, the, the cover. Um, I didn't want a face, I didn't want individual faces. I wanted to have lots of faces, or um, I didn't want an arabesque design. I, I wanted actually hundreds and hundreds of Arab faces that sort of morphed maybe into some words. Um, but wow, we really went back and forth on that. And the, the, here's the reason why, because if you don't know it, it, when you think of Israel, you get images in mind. You get faces and people. Uh, we talk about Israel as people. Uh, we worry about, you know, their insecurity or they worry about their, you know, their politics. You know, can Netanyahu really do this because he's got an internal government problem and this is a real difficult thing? Um, and, you know, we've got to deal with the fact that internal Israeli policy. You put pressure on them, you know, and da, da, da. When we think or talk about Arabs, an abstraction, at best. Um, maybe after 9-11, 19 faces all of a sudden came to be the Arabs for us. That was how we came to see them. But even then it was an, ob an objectification. It wasn't real people. Um, we didn't see them as children or parents who had hopes and aspirations for their kids. And we didn't see them as as problem solvers in their own lives or as doctors. Or, I mean, you don't see Ahmed, the doctor who delivers babies in the morning. Uh, you see Ahmed, the guy who straps a bomb on himself. And, and, and if that's the only one you know, then that's the image you carry with you. I, I, just one story I'll tell. I was teaching at a small college in central Pennsylvania. I had just moved there from Philadelphia with my wife and kids. Um, and we'd lived in Philly for about eight years. And, my next door neighbor would see me every day um, and he'd look at me and look at me and one day he came over and he said, I, I just gotta ask you something. And I said, yes, and he said, uh, you live there? And I said, wait, here? He said, no, 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 in Philadelphia. I, I said, yeah, he said, you, you live there? I said, yeah, I did. I I with your kids? I said, yes, sir. I lived there for about eight years with my kids. He said, he said, man, people get murdered there every day. And I said, no, 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 that's not true. He said, it is true. I read it in the paper. They're getting murdered every day. He was hysterical over it. And I was so irresponsible for having lived there. I wanted to tell him about the Italian market, about Greek town. I wanted to tell him about the, the Jewish neighborhood and, and you know, and the, the historic African-American, the, where the black bourgeoisie come from on Lincoln Drive and Chestnut Hill and the Quaker community. But he was in no mood for it because the image he had was Philadelphia from this story. Now, if the only image you have of Egypt are you know, or Gaza, you know, and that's the only Arab you see, that's the image you get or no image at all 
you can't understand them. They're not people like us. And so important is to understand these are real people. And they're as diverse and as beautiful and as ugly as the rest of us. Um, and that's what I was hoping to get across. And I think that <coughs> we couldn't do the stuff we do. We couldn't treat them the way we treat them if we saw them as real people. We'd worry about Palestinians feeling insecure. We'd worry about their orchards being uprooted. We'd worry about what settlements do to them. We'd worry about their internal politics and how they're going to react when things don't go right. And, but we don't. And so that's where I think the problem is. Even now, there was an article on the front page of the Washington Post two days ago about Egypt and Tunisia, et cetera, and the article is about U.S. is trying to deal with the fact about Islamic governments and reconciling itself to Islamic governments. Front page headline story, half the story was about Israel. I swear unto you that people in Egypt and Tunisia right now, frankly, don't give a good damn about whether Israel likes or doesn't like what's going on in their country, and nor should they. That's not their concern. Well, U.S. policymakers worry that the big concern right now is will these governments uh, da, 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 with Israel? That's not their concern, but we can't see them through their own eyes. We have to see them through the prism of what we know. And that's frankly all the only way we can understand this, which is unfortunate, and that's why we have to change the optic and not just this book, but read many more books about the region. I'll let it go there, thank you. <laughs> Well, Dan, I think it's a good time to ask you uh, what your experience was coming here from, from the university in the United States, uh, having one semester in Egypt, uh, just a study abroad kid in Egypt, and then home for Christmas, you go back, and all of this begins to unfold. Tell us something about how, how you, you interacted with the uh, people of Egypt that you knew just when you were a student, and then what may have changed during the period of the revolution? Well, I'll tell you what, Joan, thank you for having me. Uh, I think this is great uh, that we're getting a lot of people in here to, to hear the message that Dr. Zogby's trying to provide. Uh, and, and Dr. Zogby, thank you for the book. It was wonderful. Uh, one of the things that I really liked about the book, first off, was that it made me relive a lot of the conversations I had while I was in Egypt. You know, I camped in Tahrir with uh, a large group of people. Compliment. Thank you. Okay, no <laughs> and and, and as, as I was reading the book, I tell you what, I, I was just, it, it was amazing. You know, guys walking up to me, from head to toe in Nike or in Gucci. I don't know if anybody knows anything about fashion, but the Egyptians do, let me tell you. Uh, and they love it. And just like Dr. Zagri was saying, they love our movies. They, they would always ask, what movies should I watch to improve my English? What, and all of these things. And um, So it was great. It was um, my first time ever being abroad. Uh, I picked Egypt. It was a bold move. I, I've been told by many people. Um, and when I got there, it was... It was um, it was a big change, of course, but I was very open to it. I told myself I'm going to be open to, to whatever it is, food. If it looks weird, you know what, eat it. Um, and the, the, the biggest thing I was really amazed by is, is the sense of family you get anywhere you go in Egypt. And um, that even permeated into the demonstrations. People would say, well, where are you from? Are you French? No, I'm an American. Oh, are you a reporter? And they would, they would pull out their pictures of their family or their, something they found on the ground that they wanted to show me. And I'd say, no, no, I'm a student. I'm a student. Oh, well, what do you think Obama's going to say? And I would say, well, guy, I don't have a TV either. My internet's down as well. And I've been out here with you all day. I have no clue. So that you know, we would spin out into, you know, what, what's with Israel? What's with the United States? What's going on with all these other countries? I said, look. This is not about other countries. This is about Egypt. 
what you guys need to do is focus on getting yourself a voice and making it heard to your government. And I, I think that resonated a lot with the, with the people of Egypt that I talked to. And I tell you what, there was almost a procession of people coming up to talk to me when I would move, move my way through the, the crowds and things during the demonstrations. Uh, and it was just great. Um, I, I would love to do it again, but, um, you know, these things only happen once in a lifetime. Yeah, and I feel really true. blessed to have been able to experience it. Um, so, so now we're in this period of excitement, lots of things happening, lots of things haven't happened yet. So I, I, maybe I'll bring this question back to you, Dr. Zogby. What do you think is going to happen next in Egypt um, <coughs> in terms of, you know, getting a government pulled together here and, and uh, really seeing a progression toward democratization? Well, uh, up until the last week or so, I, I, I would have said I don't know. Mm. I, and what I would have also said was, as I'd been saying from the beginning, um, which didn't get me on a lot of the shows because that's not what they wanted to hear, which is a really interesting problem with some of our networks, which is that they want you to say what they, it's sort of like the reporter who called me one time from the Washington Times and said, um, I'm writing a story about such and I need somebody to say and they, this, can, you, can I use you? And that was, and that was, the, that was the, 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 that's, that's what's called journalism. So they kind of have a storyline that they want to do. My storyline about Egypt was that the leader was gone, but nothing had happened. <clears throat> the state was still intact. Um, and nobody wanted to hear that early on, but now everybody seems to have discovered it, that the military is the state and has always been the state in Egypt. And they not only um, are, are the, the, the dominant force in the country, but they also, and this goes back 150 years, um, it's nothing new, run factories that feed themselves, they have their own farms, they, have, they produce their own uniforms and products, they, they, and now they're selling those products on the open market and they've become even one of the major sort of uh, uh, conglomerate in the country. Uh, and the question is, will they create space? And, the ish, and I thought from the beginning, they're not gonna give space up easily. They'll, they'll let Mubarak go, but the question is, are they gonna have civilian control over them? I think probably not. They're gonna put some fuss and fight before they give it up, and I thought maybe the best we could hope for would be Turkey 20 years ago. But the power of the demonstrations in the last week have now said something differently to me, and that is that there's a, a healthy bit of impatience on the part of the, the youth uh, movement uh, and other elements involved, the sacking of the state security um, apparatus uh, and the taking of all of their papers, et cetera, and putting them up on the internet, I think was an important sign that we're not done with this yet. So the, we still have the immovable object, the military, but we now have this you know, irresistible force kind of re regaining momentum and the power is on. Egypt is the one situation in this whole Middle East other than Bahrain a little bit, where we actually have leverage. Mm -hmm. We have leverage with the military. We have no leverage with the people. And nobody in Tahrir Square or anywhere else is waiting for us to sprinkle holy water on what they're doing. I mean, they're not looking around for us. But we do have the ability, and we have talked to the military and have provided some restraint. They've, they have not used force. And I think we still need to be pushing on the military to open up and give more space and ground uh, I, I, and, and so I'm a little more hopeful than I was that we may get some movement here. Mm -hmm. I'm actually <coughs> an optimist. 
And uh, being there in those uh, five, six weeks during the appraisal, and of course talking to family and friends, and the Egyptians are not gonna let this opportunity go. There is no way in heaven. There is no turning back. They're going to push. 62% of Egyptians are less than age 29. This is a youth movement. It has nothing to do with Muslim Brotherhood. It has nothing to do with religion. It has something to do with the power of the youth, and they are going to keep the pressure on. The only thing I worry about now is the timetable for the election, we'll take which a lot. Ha has to be extended so that this youth I movement agree. Yeah. has a chance to coalesce and form a political. Otherwise, the Muslim Brotherhood is the most organized and the NDP is organized, the existing government party, and they could become the dominant force, which I don't think we want to see as the only competitive forces in the country. No, I, I take your point, Dr. Zobi, but again, there is no way, again, that Egypt or Egyptians are ever going to accept the Muslim Brotherhood or any sort of similar theocracy to be leading them. Inshallah. Egypt has Inshallah. never been under yeah. that uh, yeah. thought. Uh, that is my history. hope. That yeah. is my hope, too. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, Bill, let me bring you into the conversation here, and we can continue to talk about Egypt or Libya or, or any particular thing that's happening just now, or we could look at it from a sort of a removed level. You've studied a lot of, um, of governments and major political transitions. What do you see happening in, in the next few years in the Middle East? Well, I do uh, sort of come at it from having experienced and studied uh, 1989 and the fall of the Soviet Union in 91 and, and that, and the um, sense at the time that uh, each uh, fall of a communist government was a victory for democracy and, you know, that not uh, proving really to be the case uh, with hindsight. Um, and, you know, everyone I talk to, my students and my colleagues and others are, are just fascinated by this and wondering, you know, what is it that's setting off this whole string of protests that, uh, you know, even sort of threatens to go into China and other places and, um, you know, is causing consternation on the part of authoritarian rulers around the world. Um, but um, to, to go by the, uh, some of the survey findings that you report in your book, it may not be democracy that uh, is the main thing or reform or f more open political debates as much as uh, something I would classify as good governance maybe, the, the education, the healthcare, the other things that do rise to the top of the list as you were saying. But uh, if you could just help us understand sort of what is lighting the, the, the fires. In I, I would say that's right. I, I think that one of the reasons why previous movements failed in Egypt, for example, the Kafaya movement uh, as one, or you know, the, the work of uh, um, Salahuddin Ibrahim, uh, another, uh, is that they focused on, dem on democracy as a goal. And, and democracy as a goal isn't a goal. It's a, it's, democracy is a tool, it's not the end in itself. And what people, and what, what, what has moved people are issues like corruption. Um, and corruption and the byproduct of corruption, which is that the rich got richer and the poor got poorer. And, and I think what made this revolution successful was the, the fact that the, the April 6th movement tied together real people demands in the communities where they were living, in the neighborhoods where they were living around uh, better jobs and food on their table and the prices that, I mean, Egypt is the one country in the Arab world maybe the one country in the world where the elevator operator, who doesn't need to be an elevator operator because it's a push-button elevator, right, has a college degree and speaks three languages, <laughs> but it's the only job he can get. 
Um, and so there is this incredible resentment um, over the fact that you have this, um, people have called it a kleptocracy, or a, you know, it's, a, it's a small collection of people who become fabulously wealthy. Um, and at the expense of a whole lot of other people not getting wealthy. If you look at the numbers, Egypt's numbers don't look so bad. Per capita income, this, 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 comparatively speaking. But th that per capita income lies because the wealth is concentrated way up on top and the gap is enormous. So I, I think that, that you're right. I mean, the polling data tells us that it's the, the bread and butter issues that drive people. What's also important is that, and, and here's a mistake that America's made, is the second graph, which is after we ask people what their priorities are, we say, what are the priorities you want America to address? And their democracy never factors into it at all. They do not want us involved in their internal affairs any way at all. It, it's as if Sweden had offered in the middle of our healthcare debate to come over and help us fix it. <laughs> or if, if in the middle of our handgun debate, England had said, we, we can solve this problem for you. Let us, turn to us, you know. Um, and, and they don't want to, America is not the, the brand that they want to put on their democracy. It's got to be a made in Egypt, made in Tunisia, made in Bahrain or wherever it is. So I think that the polling, while it was not predictive, helps us understand the motivations of where people are. They want to do it themselves and they want to have a government responsive to their needs and not one that is corrupt and nepotistic, which is another issue that comes through in a number of the polls. I, I guess as, as I would then ask, how strong is the uh, wanting responsive government part of that, as opposed to if uh, a strong man or, or some authoritarian regime said, we can solve those economic problems, we're going we're gonna to use uh, authority and power to... Mm -hmm. um, to make things work right. We'll, ru we'll run an efficient ship and uh, use that instead of democracy. Are there forces that are going to push hard against I, that? I think if it, this had just happened um, with the military toppling the man early on, um, they might have gotten away with that. Uh, but what has changed is that weeks and weeks of self-empowerment have unleashed a dynamic that is irreversible. And so the notion of responsive governance is one that grew up out of the experience of people actually feeling self-empowered, which they had not felt. Uh, so, uh, and I think that that's exactly what you saw in, 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 in Europe. I mean, as long, if it's a coup d'etat, the people didn't make the change and therefore passively accept the change, and accept the promise that it's gonna get better. But this was not a coup d'etat. This was, blessedly, it took weeks and weeks and weeks while people grew, not just in feeling self-empowered, but in social organization. I mean, they managed a very extraordinary logistic, logistical affair uh, and then and developed communication strategies and developed organizing tools. Um, and now, are not, that's the point. They're not willing to give that stuff up. I was afraid they might fall back, but the events of the last couple of weeks have shown me that they're not giving that up and falling back. And, and so I, I, I think that um, um, at this point now, responsiveness in government is going to be essential because people will demand it. I, I, I would add, 
One of the problems we've got here um, is for too long, we've not had responsiveness in governments. Um, and if the Tea Party did anything, it was on the right, people saying, somebody's got to listen to us. And now with what's going on in Wisconsin, you have the left saying, someone's got to listen to us, stop hurting us. We have our, we have our own left-wing Tea Party and a right-wing Tea Party. And I believe that politics are going to be changed in America rather significantly because of these two movements that are kind of going to eat their young or eat their old on both sides and say, you got to answer to us. You have to give us something because we've been, as the lady told me in Pennsylvania years ago when I went and was campaigning for a governor, it was a Democrat. We'd had a Republican in office. And I said, I need you to vote this guy. She was the right demographic. She was a senior citizen on Medicaid and she needed state support and she wasn't getting it. And she looked at me and she said, Sonny, I've seen Democrats come and go. I've seen Republicans come and go. Nobody listens to me. But I think what's happening now is that people on both sides are saying, listen to me. And I think that's what's being said in Egypt and in Tunisia in particular. And something to add. <laughs> Egypt had actually a form of democracy even in 1951. People went out in the streets <laughs> and asked for their rights to be heard. In 1923, we had a parliament. There was a history in Egypt of involvement of the populace. Even during the monarchy, actually, the, the king could not spend a dollar of his money without being asked. And it's his money, not the country's money, like the Mubarak and his goons did, um, without being asked where you're going to spend it on. So, and there were actually uh, parties during the monarchy. <coughs> Uh, opposition parties. So it's not new to Egypt, the democracy issue. The, uh, again, something that uh, what Dr. Zobi just said that I wanted to add to, the labor movement in Egypt also with the youth, because <coughs> I'm sure maybe then you came across it. I don't know if you know that uh, in Wisconsin, the labor groups were raising money for the guys in Tahrir Square, and today the Tahrir Square guys are trying to raise money for the Wisconsin labor movement. So it's an interesting um, happening here of cross yeah. interaction across the continents. You know, this is a time in the world, not just in the region, that the unheard voices of minorities all across is going to be heard. And I would just add on this issue, Egypt and Wisconsin, the, the AFL-CIO um, International Affairs folks have, uh, uh, the woman who heads solidarity at AFL-CIO is Egyptian-American. And she has led seven labor delegations to Egypt in the last five years. And she's that. built a Wonderful. relationship with people. <laughs> Um, and a familiarity there, yeah. Um. Yeah, another thing, in addition to everything that's been said, that really the Egyptians specifically, because I have two, two family members that were tortured, their life ruined by the Mubaraks and his predecessors, is the police state. Yeah. The torture and the emergency laws that have never been lifted, this is what the Egyptian youth and the demonstrators are waiting for, is the lifting of this horrific system of... And, and I would say one of the things that's gonna come through in these files that have been now released, um, if, if we got them all, Some is, is, is gonna be yeah. um, about torture, 
but also about rendition. And mm -hmm. uh, as I've said, uh, when I was asked by a reporter early on, uh, is um, she said, would our standing go up in Egypt if we dumped Mubarak? And I said, no, because we're not unpopular in Egypt because he, we support Mubarak. He's unpopular in Egypt because he supports us. I mean, he made Egypt a way station on the road to rendition. I mean, we, he, was, he was working for us in that regard. Uh, we didn't want to get our hands dirty with torture. This is back when we didn't want to get our hands dirty with torture. Uh, and so he did them for us. Um, but also on Gaza and on Iraq, um, these were policies that we wanted our friends to support. And all that it did was grow the gap between leader and people and make the leaders more resentful, uh, make the people more resentful of the leaders because they saw them as, as supporting policies wildly unpopular with their own, uh, their own beliefs. And, uh, um, and, and it, it, it's interesting that it's a lot of our friends who are being harmed right, right now, and they're being harmed because they were complicitous in policies that their people didn't support. And, um, but anyway, sorry, you had, yeah. yeah. But I, I really think as far as going back to our policy and foreign policy in the U.S., we are also are facing a changing of the tides with all these different movements in the Middle East and elsewhere, maybe China, like Professor Professor was saying. Uh, we are forced to look at that part of the world that we've invested so much energy resources in our own kids uh, in, in a different light. So we're forced. We no longer have a choice, really. We have to look at it differently, and we have to adapt to the changes. It doesn't mean that we're not going to look up for our own interests, but differently. Well, I think we've had a problem uh, historically with not looking at those things even when the situation presents itself. So I think right now with the Obama administration and his historic words in Cairo, he has a unique opportunity to go in and kind of take a washcloth to the whiteboard and say, look, we're going to adopt a consistent policy toward all the countries in the region and stop confusing all the people because that's one of the big things I got was, I don't get it. I don't understand what you guys are doing over there. What, what, you know, one thing applies over here and one thing doesn't apply over here and, and vice versa. What's going on? And the very same week that the, the regime fell and we were all celebrating that, we vetoed the settlement resolution yeah, exactly. of the UN. And, and frankly, it, it, nobody could quite figure out what the heck we were doing. And the administration said, we really didn't want to do it. For that reason, we really didn't want to do it, but nobody made you. Right? <laughs> nobody, nobody, nobody forced you to. And I, I just think, they, and then what they tried to do, which really bothered me, was to they tried to get uh, President Abbas to drop it, so that they wouldn't have to veto it, which would have killed him. I mean, it literally would have buried his government because he was already in trouble over burying the Goldstone report. Right and in trouble over the Palestine Papers, which just got released, and to even think to ask him to do that. I'm, I, I'm much more optimistic about Egypt than I am about change here right now. I, I think that we've, we've got to put some muscle behind this, uh, this administration and push them a little bit, because I frankly don't think that they, he made all the right promises in Cairo, but if you look at the Cairo checklist and you look at the performance, um, as the president told us, one speech alone isn't going to make change, and it hasn't. And we, we've got a lot of work to do, a lot of work to do uh, to, 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 to bring the change home. So.
Well, you know, fascinating hour. I'm, I'm sorry to see it come to an end, but I want to say thank you, Bill Reisinger, Dan Olinghouse, Shams Gonem, and uh, Jim Zogby. Thank did you I mention so that I have a book? <laughs> you, you please do again. Oh, yes, we did, and I'm, I'm signing them outside. <laughs> no, no, but tell us the name of your book again. The book is called Arab Voices, What They're Saying to Us and Why It Matters. And it's a great book. I hope you'll all buy it. Prairie Lights is just outside the door. And, and we have come to the end of this program. Thank you all for coming. Uh, you can look for the broadcast of this program on University of Iowa Television. You'll also hear it on Iowa Public Radio and KRUI-FM. So thank you all for coming. This has been World Canvas Studio. And uh, see you later. Thank you.